And now for something completely different. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And good morning and welcome to Wednesday. It's the hump day edition of the show. Of course, uh, Danny Ratliff joining me this morning as well, talking about buying the dip, right? I mean, this is the big question everybody has right now. Uh, markets really can't seem to get off of the ground at this point. Again, big decline this year. Certainly has investors, you know, feeling very worried, very nervous about what's going on. Uh, today, of course, is the big inflation report. We talked about this yesterday. Expected right now, expectations are that on a month-over-month basis, we will see an uptick of about 0.4 percent in terms of the overall CPI inflation rate. Now, there's some evidence that we might even see a little bit softer print this morning, maybe 0.2, 0.3, we'll see when the number comes out. But, uh, you know, again, this is likely now, and if we begin to look back here over the last several months, what we're seeing is a steady trend lower in the rate of monthly increases in CPI. So again, one thing that's uh, suggesting is that we've likely seen the peak of inflation. And we're going to start seeing more deflationary pressures as we move forward in the year, particularly as the economy begins to slow down. Lots of, uh, lots of economic data now starting to disappoint expectations. We're starting to see manufacturing slow down. The NFIB, which is the National Federation of Independent Business, they reported their survey yesterday. Now, the National Federation of Independent Businesses basically is a, a, a representation group uh, for small to mid-sized businesses. Uh, so the Apples, the Microsofts, they don't belong to NFIB. This is mostly small to mid-sized businesses around the country. And, you know, they take a survey once a month talking about, well, what are you seeing in terms of in inflation or pricing or sales, uh, your economic outlook? The economic outlook for small to mid-sized businesses is about as bad now as it was at the bottom in 2008. So the outlook economically is not good. We're starting to see plenty of evidence now. The consumer is starting to be uh, impacted by you know, higher prices. And of course, as we've said before, the cure for high prices is high prices because that creates demand destruction. That's, a, that's one of those big funky terms out there that basically just says that consumers can't afford to buy more stuff. That's all that means. Um, and again, as they run out of money, their demand has to slow. And as that slows, that slows down economic growth because our economy is 70% consumption. It's just math, folks. I mean, it really just doesn't get any, any simpler than this. But that all leads, of course, as inventories are now building up, that leads to lower prices. As demand slows, higher prices have to come down in order to find people to sell stuff to. That's just economics. It's just the way it works. Supply and demand, and this has just been a function of the problem. This is the, this is the issue with government is that their solution to solving high prices is to do stuff that creates high prices. <laughs> so, you know, uh, doing things like sending checks to households, right? Give people more money to spend. And I understand, you know, look, we want to help people. I get it, right? It's, it's always a function of wanting to help people. It's a feel-good thing, right? Let's help, let's help everybody. I'm all in. Let's figure out a way to help everybody, right? But there's a consequence for helping everybody. And sometimes you just need to let the economy operate as it needs to operate, and we solve these issues. Now, yes, is it painful in the short term? Of course. 
But this is the consequence of having after, you know, almost a decade and a half now of trying to avoid recessions, we keep creating bigger and bigger problems. And, and again, this is just something that are lessons that have yet to be learned by, you know, our elected officials in Washington is that we can't solve the problems and you can't just inject money into the markets and hope that that will just alleviate a short term pressure. You don't shut down economies because of a virus. You just don't do these things. And the 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 carnage of doing things like shutting down an economy or sending checks to households was evident early on. We were writing about the sugar rush a year and a half ago saying, look, if you do this, if you send all this money to households, you're going to create a sugar rush. And if you've, if you've got kids, you know what happens when you put kids on a bunch of sugar. They run around like crazy for 30 minutes and you find them balled up in a corner somewhere snapping. You know, it's just, you know, they're, they're out like a light. And that's just because when that, when that sugar runs through the system, it has to, the system shuts down. And that's just, that was evident of what was going to happen in the economy. And so here we are, and now we're having the payback. As we've said, as we said yesterday, free money isn't free. And, you know, you, you're going to pay it back in one form or another. And this is how you pay it back through inflation. But this is also the problem, as we've talked about before, with modern monetary theory, which is neither modern monetary or a theory. Um, you know, this idea that, you know, government can just send money to people and it's all fine and dandy. It doesn't work. It doesn't create incentive to work. It doesn't create better economic outcomes. It doesn't work. It's called socialism. And socialism has never worked in any economy ever in history. So, you know, again, we don't learn from history. And maybe part of that problem is the fact we don't teach history in school anymore. But we don't teach history. It was interesting. My daughter came to me over the weekend and uh, she goes, Dad, I've got this big project to do at school. And I was like, well, what's the project about? She goes, I have to write an article on a dystopian and a utopian society. And primarily, you know, how does a utopian society fall into dystopia? Right. And, and uh, I'm like, well, and my, my brain's already running and saying, well, well, honey, you just need to go read the book 1984 by George Orwell. But she didn't have time to read a book over the weekend, right? She had to write the report. Of course, she procrastinated to the last minute. And here it is, end of school. So we watched Elysium with Matt Damon. And, and, uh, but same idea, right? I mean, this is how you wind up with this split society. The rich basically are, are you know, leading the great life and everybody else is, is not. And, you know, these are, the, these are the challenges that we face as an economy. Today, we have this big wealth gap between the rich and the poor, and we're doing things that do not elevate and support the poor and middle class. We're actually doing things that transfer wealth from the, the lower and middle classes to the upper class. Now, if you're in the upper class, you certainly say, well, what's wrong with that? But, you know, this is not what creates a more vibrant economy. But this is stuff we've been doing now for a, over, well over a decade and have not learned the consequences of those actions. Fed bailouts, quantitative easing. These are not supports for an economy. They are a wealth transfer tax from the middle and lower classes to the upper class those that have assets. And that's why 90% of the stock market today is owned by the top 10% of income earners. So when the markets go up, well, their, their wealth has gone down here a bit lately, but you know, that's why when markets are rising, the wealthy get wealthier and not the middle class, not the lower class, because they're not invested in the markets. They have very little exposure to asset prices. So 
Uh, long way around the block here this morning to talk about what we're going to get into this morning, which is this inflation is a problem, but we may have seen the peak of it. And that's going to start to lead to more disinflationary pressures as the economy begins to slow towards a recession. Now, that doesn't mean that we're going to have this massive 50% decline in the markets. Don't think that because the average drawdown just during a recession is about 15 to 20%, about where we are right now. The difference between that 15 to 20% drawdown during a normal recession and a 50% drawdown like in 2008 is that you need a contingent exogenous event which is generally credit related, like the subprime crisis, on top of the recession. So the question is, will the Fed hike rates at this point to the level that creates some type of credit related exogenous events in the markets? We'll explore that a little bit this morning, buying the dip, where are we now, what the outlook is. That's all coming up right here on The Real Investment Show with Danny Ratliff. Don't go away. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. How do the richest people of the world invest and protect their families? Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff's next virtual lunch and learn on the truth about life insurance will show you how to insure your income, minimize your taxes, and protect your real estate. Thursday, May 12th at noon. The most important insurance policy you'll ever own is the one you'll have when you die. Register now for the truth about life insurance lunch and learn at realinvestmentadvice.com. The truth about life insurance with Ratliff and Rosso. realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show. Well, Brand, if you were paying attention, you wouldn't be running over curbs this morning in our Link Challenge bus. Uh, the ramp was dark. Gotcha. Lights were out on the bus, is yes. that what you say? Yes. Yes. Driving by Braille. <laughs> uh, good morning. Welcome back to the show. My favorite guest is joining me this morning, Hugh Hefner, live from the Playboy Mansion. Wow, that is some kind of jacket you have on this morning, Mr. Ratliff. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> when you woke up this morning, you said, I think I'll wear my smoking jacket to, to <laughs> work this morning. <laughs> did, that thing come with, did that thing come with batteries? Of course. <laughs> of course. <laughs> We're just joking. If you're, if, you're not, if you're not watching our live stream on YouTube, you, you kind of miss all the visuals. But uh, Danny has Whew. a very bright watercolor melon, watermelon colored jacket on this morning. With accents of blue. Exactly. To yeah. match his shirt. Yeah. So he, he at least did match. Hey, right? at least I wear true. something besides bowling shirts, okay? <laughs> yeah, it's true. <laughs> But, you know, when he gets up in the morning, you know, Michelle did a good job. For yes. Him. You know, she put she put granimals on the back of all of his clothes. All he has to do is match them up so he gets the right colors for the right hey, pants. Man, you got to make life easy. You know, life's hard enough as it is. Granimals That's why I adults. just wake up every morning and wear a golf shirt. It's yeah. really easy. I'm like <laughs> Albert Einstein. I don't waste any mental energy on getting dressed. <laughs> oh, man. Morning. How are you? I'm just, well. just joking with you. Oh, all good. All good. Um, all right. So a couple of things. I, I was just kind of wrapping up the last segment talking about buying the dip here. And of course, this morning we've got inflation coming out likely to be a little bit weaker than expected. 
And we'll, we'll see how it comes out. I mean, it might be right in line. We're right at the tail end of this kind of inflationary spike that we had in the market from monetary inputs. Now, the M2 money supply is dropping off here rather quickly on a year-over-year rate of change. So that's going to start to feed. There's a very close correlation, obviously, to monetary supply and inflation. Runs about a nine-month lag. So we're now right to that point to where inflation is about to start reflecting the drop-off in the rate of change of monetary supply. Now, I know that's a lot of big numbers for you this morning, but and it's early, and I'm not asking you to do math. Just trust me on this. Um, but if we're right here kind of at that juncture, so if we don't get – a little bit weaker, you know, inflation number today. It'll be in the next month or next month or two. And the reason is because the year-over-year comparison rates are coming up very quickly. The, the number, the inflation number this time last year was where it was really starting to take off and everybody really started kind of focusing on inflation. And we've been talking about inflation now for a year. So not surprisingly, we're just kind of at that point to where we're going to see that peak and that reversion. Now, uh, again, as I've stated before, just to be clear, that doesn't mean the gas at the gas station gets any cheaper, right? It just means it stops going up as much, okay? So that's, that's, all, that's all it means. Now, at some point, prices will fall as we get further into a recession, and that's the differential between disinflation, which is where the inflation rate is just kind of moderating or declining, to going negative as we get into deflation. In other words, the rate of change becomes negative, in inflation. That'll happen during the recession, and that'll be later on this year or early next year, unless the Fed is somehow magically, for the first time ever in the history of the Federal Reserve, is able to actually engineer a soft landing that doesn't put us into a recession. But I wouldn't take odds on that. <laughs> that's, that's probably not a good bet. But it seems like individual investors are betting that that's going to be the case, because if we look back at, at numbers yeah. here back in March, we saw $28 billion of U.S. listed stocks, ETFs were actually purchased. We saw in April another $24 billion. And in fact, just last week, when we had that 3.6% drop in mm -hmm. the S&P, people swept in. We didn't see it necessarily in, in the index pricing, per se, but, but studies show that uh, $2.6 billion were actually purchased that yep. day. Yeah, and, and again, you know, the the problem is is knowing where that money's coming from. Yeah, a lot of it's stock buybacks. Uh, the stock buyback window is open back up, so that's uh, you know obviously providing some support here. And again, if we kind of start to see markets move up, we'll start to see those buybacks even pick up more. Um, but the other side of that also too is 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 that you know investors have been trained to buy the dip, and that's you know everybody's t trying to hope. And this is you know uh, we were talking about on Monday was it Brent? We we're talking about rich strike. Yes. So if you did you see the derby over the weekend no. or hear the story? I, I know the story. Yes. Okay. So Rich Strike came. You know, I mean, come on. I came from the derby. Yeah, with my exactly. Jacket. What are you talking about? <laughs> this is a point. Um, but yeah, I'm still so, there. Come so, on. so if you don't know the story, Rich Strike came. He was literally in the back of the pack uh, of horses and Epicenter is at the front of the pack and they're in the home stretch epicenter slated to win the kentucky derby and rich strike comes from all the way in the back and wins the race right i mean right at the dead last second of the race and just a phenomenal upset here but that's what investors are betting on um you know we've trained investors over the last you know two years in particular to buy dips and Everybody keeps hoping that this dip is going to be the dip to buy, and then we're going to get this massive rally in the markets and things are going to take off again. We're going to have a repeat of the March 2020 lows. 
And look, uh, you know, we're victim of that too. I mean, we're we're looking at all our statistical data going, man, markets are extremely oversold here. I, we wrote an article yesterday on the website talking about investor sentiment, which is so extremely bearish. You would think that we're actually, you know, at a point in the markets of 2008 during the financial crisis. That's how bearish investors are sentiment-wise. But to Danny's point, they're super bearish on the sentiment, right? The, the market's about to crash, but I don't really want to sell anything. Right, <laughs> you know, just in case, and and that's well, no, it's or really kind people of don't want to pay taxes, and well, they don't want to pay taxes, but more importantly, they don't want to miss out. You know, despite the, the the negative sentiment, they're still afraid of missing out on the rally, because that's what we've trained investors to do now, repeatedly, and everybody's kind of expecting any moment now the Fed's going to reverse course and come in and 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 go back to QE and run stocks back up. We'll see what happens. Um, but it is interesting, Danny, to your point that, you know, despite the negativity that we see and hear and feel and everything else in the markets, you know, investors are still trying to buy that dip. Well, they are. And it's interesting. I was reading an article about a gentleman who um, retired and he actually has a lot more in stocks right now than he did when he actually retired. He had about half his portfolio. Now he's looking at more than about, you know, 66 to 70 some odd percent in equities. And he continues to increase exposure yet he continues to lose money. Mm -hmm. And so that's the difficult aspect of where we are right now. This thing could, yeah, we could see this bounce. I mean, we've talked about a reflexive bounce here for a bit. Market's being extremely oversold. But this guy's making a fundamental decision that this is going to be long-term. We're going to be much better off. And I, and I do believe that. I, I really do that, you know, next couple of years, we're likely going to be in a way, way better position. But what does it take to get there? Yeah. And, and again, you know, part of this is is also to, you know, that we've got to reverse that sentiment. Um in a lot of cases, where real bear markets bottom is when investors no longer want to own equities, period. It's, it's you know, when you talk to somebody and it's like, hey, we need to be buying stocks. And they're like, no way. You know, there's no way I'm investing in the markets. That's just crazy talk. That's when you want to be buying the bottom. And we're not there yet. There's still, you know, too much um, interest in the markets at this point. And you've got to really those 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 true buying opportunities come like we saw back in 2009. Nobody wanted to own equities at the bottom of the financial crisis. It was like, this is crazy. This is just, you know, done. And they didn't come back for years, right? And, you know, still, and this was the problem with March 2020 and why March 2020 wasn't a bear market is because investors were too willing to jump back in and take on excess speculative risk, you know, at the bottom of March of 2020. And that's not what you see in a bear market. And at the bottom of a bear market, investors don't jump into the most speculative stocks. That's what happens during a, a big bull market correction. And that's what we saw there, too, as well. So, but the, but the real point here, Danny, and I guess this is, is the question is, of, of course, you know, we're probably going to see this market rally and bounce a bit. And we're going to start to see a lot of people trying to come back into the markets thinking that the, the bear market is over. We'll probably see that. Um, that's going to be the trap, though, of course, that's going to lure a lot of investors in because we still have a lot of headwinds ahead of us. Uh, Fed hiking interest rates, extracting monetary supply, economy slowing down, uh, earnings are going to decline, valuations are falling. So there's still, there's still a good bit of headwinds for these markets over the course of the next few months. Well, I think interesting earnings have been decent. I mean, if you look at them year over year, aren't they up like 11%? They are. It, but I think we're going to, like you mentioned, we're going to start to see some of these higher costs are going to really impact the overall uh, you know, health of these corporations as they impact consumers. I mean, we saw credit card debt go through the roof yeah. here over the last couple of months. 
I mean, I'm talking like, you know, over billions of dollars. I think the average pre-pandemic was 15 billion. And we're like 50 something in March. Yeah. Well, and, and again, the total credit card debt is right back to where it was at the peak uh, of the of the credit card cycle just prior to March of 2020. So a lot of those people paid off credit card debt. Now they've put it back, all back on. So all that free money they got has now gone back onto credit because they can't, you know, make ends meet. And, and that's not surprising. So, you know, is there more room for people to leverage up credit cards? Absolutely. Um, we'll see how much more there is, but that's going to be one of the impacts on what's happening, of course, with consumer spending and economic growth. And, you know, Danny, you're right. You know, trailing earnings look pretty good. And again, not surprising. That was still kind of the yeah. tail end of, you know, expanded unemployment benefits. Child tax credits ran out in uh, December of last year. So there was still a lot of that monetary slosh still sitting in the system. But corporate outlooks this earnings season have really deteriorated. What they're saying about over the course of the next 6, 8, 12 months on expectations for earnings growth, for sales, those type of things have really have really become much more negative. And I think that's going and that's them starting to talk down earnings. And the interesting thing is that earnings estimates from Wall Street have really not come down that much. In fact, they've been ratcheting them up in the first quarter of this year. So there's still a lot of adjustment that needs to come down on these earnings estimates for these companies, which are already starting to warn this. They're saying, hey, things may be weaker over the rest of this year, and our earnings may be weaker because of that, but yet Wall Street hasn't revised down those earnings yet, which is helping support valuations. Even though valuations are coming down on a forward basis because of falling prices, once those forward estimates come down, valuations are going to fall even more. So just be careful with the Ford estimate thing because there's a lot of charts right now. It's like, oh, valuations are cheap because Ford estimates have come down to 17 times earnings. Hang on. They still got to adjust. They, they've adjusted the P, but not the E yet. And that's still coming. Be right back after the break. investment advice blog it's required reading for the informed investor catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com how do the richest people of the world invest and protect their families richard rosso and danny ratliff's next virtual lunch and learn on the truth about life insurance will show you how to ensure your income minimize your taxes and protect your real estate thursday may 12th at noon the most important insurance policy you'll ever own is the one you'll have when you die register now for the truth about life insurance lunch and learn at realinvestmentadvice.com the truth about life insurance with ratliff and rosso realinvestmentadvice.com. You're listening to The Real Investment Show. So welcome back to the show this morning. Danny Ratliff joining me as well, of course, a certified financial planner. Uh, you have an event coming up. We do. We have the uh, Truth About Life Insurance. It's going to be actually this Thursday tomorrow at noon. So go go to realinvestmentadvice.com. We're going to talk about all the things that Dave Ramsey doesn't want to tell you about life insurance. And so we're going to really cover the basics, 30,000 foot view, how we look at term, how we view permanent life insurance, where it falls for each person and how you should best use these. Because I think that um, you know a lot of these get a bad rap 
also many of them are sold and we really think that they need to be planned for. So we're going to talk to you about all the tips that you need to know, things that you should take into consideration when you're actually doing this and how you would use each different type of policy. Best investment ever, whole life insurance policy. Well, I think permanent life insurance can have a, a great, it's a fantastic tool for many people. You know, we get a lot of, we have a lot of conversations with people who say, look, um, I make too much money. I can't put money into a Roth. I can't, uh, where do I put other funds aside, maybe more tax efficiently? And that can certainly be one way yeah. uh, to do so. And, you know, so that's the things that I think that are so often overlooked or they're sold that way, but then they're not actually used properly you know, once you get into the product. Yeah, I think that's the, I think that's the biggest the biggest thing that comes up is that, for instance, Dave Ramsey makes great points. When you're trying to get out of debt um, and you're putting all your money towards getting out of debt, you know, buy a term life insurance policy. That way, if something happens to you, your family's taken care of. But the 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 thing about term life insurance policy is that you're supposed to buy the term and then you're supposed to invest the difference between what you paid for term and what you would pay for a permanent life insurance policy. And then when the term policy expires, then you have a whole bunch of cash saved up and you can basically self-insure at that point, right? So that's so you don't need the insurance anymore. You've got plenty of coverage. If you pass away, everybody's taken care of. This is the whole point. The problem is, is that as always is the case, we buy term and then we spend everything else. So yeah. what happens at the end of the day is that you live to the end of your term. You've now spent 20 years or 30 years paying for term insurance and it expires worthless. And you've just now wasted 30 years worth of money that you could have been investing in uh, a permanent life insurance policy that was building a cash value or investing in the stock market to become self-insured. You know, but this is this is the problem, as is always the case. You know, we are told simple solutions. Hey, just go do this or just go do that. But what happens, and again, this is what Danny and Rich are going to cover in, in, in this. And this is a big passion of mine, right? Because as as somebody who I, I use permanent life insurance to fund other ventures because of a lot of, and they'll go into all the details as to why, you know, wealthy people use permanent life insurance for more than just life insurance. There's a lot of benefits to it. Tax, yeah. tax benefits, as well as tax deferral, tax-free growth, tax-free withdrawals, lots of stuff that you can do with a permanent life insurance policy that nobody tells you about but can really help build your wealth over time. And, and for me personally, look, I build businesses. I invest in markets. My best investment ever, period, end of story, without a doubt, has been permanent life insurance. And if I could do it all over again, I'd work at Taco Bell and just invest. And, and that way I could, you know, have tacos every day, invest in permanent life insurance and have the drag bunch show up to, you know, tell me why I should eat more tacos <laughs> Taco at Taco Bell. Bell. I'm Taco Bell drag bunch. That's a thing. Now. A, this is the thing. So, so you know, Lance, you make some really good points there. And life insurance, you know, that's one of the things that, especially if you're younger, yeah, setting up some type of permanent policy can really be to your advantage because you can use this. And, and essentially, like Lance mentioned, you're going to be able to use this and take a loan out. Now, there's some a lot of different factors when we look at these policies. But the bigger thing, Lance, I think, is that many times we're told, even with a permanent policy, Hey, you're going to be able to put the funds here. We're going to grow and accumulate cash value, and it's going to be the greatest thing ever. The problem is, is that to, for these to truly act and run on all cylinders, you need to overfund it if that's the case you're, you're going right. with. And that's so right. when we're looking for somebody who's looking for the accumulation aspect, you know, we want to use term policies, You know, kind of the hierarchy. Term policies are going to be the, um, you know, this is what you're going to use for risk mitigation. 
You're going to really look at for how do you protect your family? God forbid something happens to you, your spouse. Um, this is going to be the, the the big kicker here. And for a set period of time, you have children. When will they be out of the house? Or you're continuing to accumulate wealth. When, um, when are you going to be self-insured? Now, I would always, you could probably always make an argument for some type of policy, you know, depending on the stage of life that you're in. But these permanent policies can be great. The issue is they're never overfunded, so you don't actually get that growth. What we like to do with those types is we mm-hmm. want to make sure that we have a lower death benefit because we're not in it for the death benefit. We're in it for the accumulation of wealth. And that's the, the bigger difference yep. there, Lance. And then the other reason we would use a permanent policy would be for somebody who has quite a bit of wealth. Um, they need to protect funds and assets from estate taxes. You know, we, we know right now estate taxes, the, uh, the number's way up there, the estate tax limit. But that's going to go down in 2026. In fact, yesterday the Treasury just talked about how they're looking, if they don't make a change already, which we heard last year with all the tax talk, they were going to reduce it significantly. Well, they're going to let this sunset in 2026 if they don't do something prior to that. And you're going to see a lot of people who did not fall into that spot where they're going to have a pretty big crunch on, on estate taxes. They will be in that situation. And this is another way to help mitigate that, help keep funds in your heirs' pockets, create that legacy, and then pay the taxes with the policy. Exactly. Well, no, and that's uh, look, with everything, of course, and you bring up great points, um, there's rules to everything, right? And you have to follow the rules. And that's my point about per, uh, term life. Nothing wrong with term life insurance. Mo- 99% of people that buy term life insurance don't follow the rules. That's that's the whole point. So, you know, no matter what you and the problem is, is that, you know, for people that just want to sell insurance, you know, they badmouth everything else. And this is the problem with advisors. Uh, look, I'm, I'm going to badmouth advisors right now. Uh, advisors are the worst about selling insurance because they want to they want to manage your assets. So they tell you, oh, you know, permanent life insurance, that's a terrible idea because they want to manage your assets so they can charge you a fee on your assets. Right. I mean. Or you hear the complete opposite where they say, hey, I mean, we talked about it, a term policy versus a permanent policy yeah. for uh, an agent. You're going to get more commissions with a permanent policy. Doesn't mean it's a bad thing, but you need to make sure you understand exactly what you own. What right. you know, what are the bells and whistles? What am I paying for? And, you know, that's the other caveat. I know people who are, you know, they're they work for very large insurance companies selling property and casualty. And, you know, they start getting into, well, I've got to go get my Series 7. I've got to go get this. Well, why? Because we need to sell some VULs. Well, why do you need to sell VULs? Everybody needs one. Okay, really? Why? Let's talk about this. <laughs> and, and that's the problem is that, you but know. there be commissions. Well, but if all you have is a, is a hammer, everything's a nail. And so you need to be a little bit more uh, holistic in, in, in light of all these things. And, you know, we talk about financial planning. and I'm beating that drum constantly. But that's where a really good financial plan, and really with all insurance, comes into play because then we can back into these numbers and get a very good understanding as, as far as what exactly you need. And that's right. not just life insurance. It's it's long-term care. It's really any and everything that you're looking at doing there. That'll help create that roadmap and that blueprint for you. Yeah. Well, and again, this kind of goes into our topic, which was, this was kind of a long beaten way around, you know, getting to our topic about what advisors are telling clients to do in times like we have now, both the good and the bad. And, you know, this is something that you deal with pretty much every day. I do. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, we talked about last segment, how we're all these people buying the dip. I can tell you the majority of people we're talking to, they're not they're not willing to buy that dip. Now, I think people are willing to say, look, we need to remain invested. We understand, you know, we can't time this exactly. Things could shift quickly. And so I do think there is that and, and people feel okay in that regard, especially if you're sitting on some cash as well, because one, you're you have some some uh you're insulated just a bit. 
And you also have that ability where, okay, if it is the time to buy the dip, we're going to be able to do that if we get a confirmation of a trend change. And I think that's the bigger part of it, knowing mm -hmm. that you have that flexibility and some downside protection. But look, if things continue and, and we get a nice bounce, I mean, we've talked about different portfolio actions that we would take um, in light of all that's going on. And I think that's important. But, you know, we're hearing the same narrative. Buy and hold, don't worry about it. Continue to take the same exact distributions. And, you know, for many who have continued to escalate their overall equity exposure, you know, hey, I, I pray it works out. And look, we always hope markets go up. You know, that's what we want. We don't like seeing money eroded. We want to see that, um, you know, uh, plans that are uh, that work well. And I think the big thing here is that if you're going to continuously, you know, add exposure here, you've got to be really cautious. And, you know, for the buy and hold guys out there, you may need to start looking at, you know, what do your distributions look like if things continue to deteriorate? Vanda Research actually just came out with some numbers that really kind of shocked me, Lance. They said the average portfolio is down about 28%. Mm -hmm. Now, if we look at the indexes, they're not down nearly as much. But the index, we've talked about how they're, they're market cap weighted. That changes it a little bit because we've had a handful of companies that are really big that have not been down nearly as bad as the index. Well, at least until about probably last right. week. <laughs> exactly. right? uh, but you know, now we're seeing that you know, when you looked under the hood, there were a lot of companies that were good companies that were really beat up. And a lot of people own those. So I think that's probably where we're seeing those much larger numbers, especially if yeah. you own well, anything in that growth sector. Well, and two, you know, the problem is for the the average investor is that, A, they may own the same stocks as in the index, but they don't own the same weights. Correct. And, you know, there's a lot of people that have owned Apple, Microsoft, Netflix, Amazon, you know, and those have become very big positions in their portfolio. And other stuff in their portfolio has not. And so their, their market cap weighted you know, biases are out of tolerance. And this is one thing we talk about a lot on the show is about rebalancing back to weight. You know, sell, you know, when things run up a lot, rebalance it back to target weight. So if it's, you know, if Amazon's supposed to be 4% of your portfolio and it gets to five on a, on a big move higher, trim it back to four. And that way, when you do have these big corrective events, A, you've already locked in a lot of your gains and B, it doesn't destroy your portfolio because of the decline those stocks have. And that's what's happening to a lot of people. And to Danny's point, you know, most investors took on a lot of risk over the last couple of years buying stocks that were the innovators, the ARC type companies. And those have been decimated. They're down 60, 70% this year already. And so if your portfolio owns that, yeah. You know, there's a, there's a lot more pain in the average portfolio than what you see in the index. And that's really what's driving a lot of this move in the markets. We'll come back after the break, talk about behavioral biases here a little bit. And, um, you know, a couple other topics to wrap up the show. Don't go away. We'll be right back on The Real Investment Show with Danny Ratliff this morning. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. How do the richest people of the world invest and protect their families? Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff's next virtual lunch and learn on the truth about life insurance will show you how to insure your income, minimize your taxes, and protect your real estate. Thursday, May 12th at noon. The most important insurance policy you'll ever own is the one you'll have when you die. Register now for the truth about life insurance lunch and learn at realinvestmentadvice.com. The truth about life insurance with Ratliff and Rosso. Realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show. 
And welcome back to the show this morning. Danny Radliff joining me as well. So talk a little bit here about behavioral biases. This is, you know, again, you know, everything we've been talking about this morning is really a function of what we do as investors. And there was an interesting article out in Barron's uh, talking about, in fact, I, I wrote an article about this yesterday about investor sentiment is so bearish it's now bullish. And I know that sounds weird, but that's contrarian investing. Investors tend to do exactly the wrong things at the wrong times repeatedly um, because of emotional biases, right? We, we try to, you know, avert loss. So we start selling at the wrong time. Um, and then when things are really negative, all we read is really negative stuff, which makes us even more bearish and more you know, apt to emotionally sell something at, at, at markets. Because right now, the markets are just going to crash and die, and that's kind of every headline in the media. When markets are bullish, they're going to go up forever, so we start taking on a lot of excess risk. And so, again, we buy high, we sell low repeatedly, and which is why investors typically don't do well over the long term, despite you know the the you know, you know, an, uh, an advisor will trot out a chart and says, well, if you just invested in the markets over the last hundred years, you'd make 8% a year, whatever the number is. Investors don't do that. They don't make that because they repeatedly buy high and sell low, which destroys their returns over time. But that's emotional. That's behavior, right? That's, that's what we do as humans. And, you know, uh, Danny, this, this article I thought was interesting by Barron's just because, you know, here we are, you know, markets are down. Seeing a lot of negative sentiment, and and Barron's kind of got into this whole article about behavioral biases and things that that we're doing. Yeah, I think one of the bigger things that we typically see is recency bias, and you know we've talked about this how the the uh, the goalpost continues to move in the sense of information and how quickly we receive it. And I mean, it is phenomenal. And so, in the aspect that you know we we're so tied to the recency bias as far as what has happened recently, what's going to go on, that we kind of forget to look forward into the future and say, okay. Well, things have been great. So give you a great example, Lance. January raised some cash, and most people were, oh, my gosh, what are we doing with cash? Mm -hmm. You know, lots of phone calls. Why do we have so much cash in a portfolio when the, when the market's done so well? Well, the idea was taking some chips off the table, also seeing that things were a little bit overdone, and that, okay, now, I don't think, I think if we knew all that had gone on, we'd have a whole lot more cash <laughs> at the moment. But nobody technically you know, really knows that. So... The, the key there was that everybody thought, oh, man, we've had such a great market. Why get out now? Or why take some profits? Um, and, and now the opposite is true. Now we're hearing more of, hey, we're going to take some more. You know, it was funny because it was way too much then. Now it's not nearly enough now mm -hmm. because we've had such a, such a troubling time here in the markets over the last several uh, months. And I think that this is something that, you know, we talked about last year, even 2020. 2020's downturn was like 23 days. And, and you know, we got past, and that was a really painful 23 days. Yeah, it was terrible. It, it, it was not fun. But now we're actually in something that's been a little bit more prolonged. And, you know, this nine is, months. What's that? Nine months. Nine months. We've been doing this since nine months ago. So, yeah. We, and, that, and that's the thing, right? If you were invested in the markets last May, yeah. you're right where you were last May. Yeah. You know, but that's just what's been going on here, right? We've given up a year's worth of gains. But really, if you look at your portfolio, you're right where you were in May of last year. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so it feels and this is the point about about behavior and feeling and all this. It feels terrible. Right. Oh, yeah. But that's because one of the one of our behavioral biases is what we call anchoring. Right. And, and what do we anchor to? We anchor to the high watermark. So everybody looks at their portfolio from January of this year and goes, well, I'm just I'm getting killed here. No, you're where you were last May. 
Yeah. Right. I mean, but this is the this is the problem is that we don't keep things in perspective. Right. Markets go up, markets go down, markets go up, they go down. And 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 I'm not making light of the fact of the decline that we've had this year because it has been painful, but it's been one of these very protracted consolidations since May of last year. We've gone up, we've gone down, we've flopped around a whole lot like a fish out of water. I mean, it's it's not been fun, but again, because we anchor and, and so does the media, right? Every day you turn on the media, market's down 16% for the year. Yeah, it's terrible, right? But we were up 26% last year. We were up 120% from the March 2020 lows. Perspective is important uh, to keep these behavioral biases in check to keep you from making investment mistakes. Yeah, I think that's a great point. You know, it's, it's so easy to, to anchor to that high water mark. It's so easy to think that, you know, markets are only going to go up. And look, any little bit hurts. No, there's there's never an amount that you when you see any of it go down that you're going to be ah oh, okay you know and I think that you know but we need to understand how markets do work we're going to have you know we'll take two or three steps forward we'll take a step back two or three steps forward yeah. a step back and you know markets do go up and here's the one thing that I want to caution everybody on is that the the big thing that we hear in times like this is that the markets go up more than they go down and while that is that is true but a lot of that time they're just trying to get back from being down right before you you go and, and make new highs. And so we need to take this into perspective as far as what that means for you and your money. And this is why we believe that active management and risk mitigation is so important because you could write this thing down and you'd likely be okay if you don't need distributions, mm -hmm. if you have a long time period, no big deal. But, and, and for an accumulator, you could use this. This could be a great, you know, tailwind for you mm -hmm. in the sense that you're putting funds to work. You know, another big mistake people make, Lance, is that, well, I stopped my 401k. I stopped my contributions right now or I just put everything into cash, didn't do anything. Well, you may be presented with a really nice opportunity at some point here in the future. Right. And so we want to make sure that we're always putting those funds aside because I hear that advice too. Oh yeah, stop everything. Don't worry. Yeah. Well, the problem is always, of course, is the getting back in part. Yeah. You know, look, one, one you know, uh, again, look, I get it, right? Um, every advisor, every portfolio, et cetera, is always benchmarked against year-to-date returns. What happened between January and January, or January and December 31st, right, that is irrelevant to your money. Um, I benchmark my personal portfolio on a two-year basis. Where was I two years ago? Where am I today? Why? The reason is, is because as long as I'm making gains, I'm heading towards my goal, and what happens within a given year is irrelevant long-term. So my, my anchor point is two years ago, and I go back two years. Where was I two years ago? Where am I today? That's my benchmark because, again, my goal is to create an average rate of return over time. I'm not worried about really what happened over the last month or two or three. Volatility is part of the game, and you've got to understand that when you're investing. So if you start setting realistic objectives and start saying, you know, where was I when I started versus where am I now – and where am I in relation to my goal? And this is one thing that Danny and Richard do very well with clients is setting these long-term pathways, saying this is where we need to get to, and we just need to generate this much money a year to get to that goal. And if you can do that, you're going to be fine. But that's a much better way to benchmark. Benchmarking to your financial objective is much better than benchmarking to an index because an index is going to require you to take on way too much risk in order to meet or beat that index. And that's the whole problem with passive indexing, which is you're striving to be average. And that's not <laughs> that's not really our goal 
of investing over time. But is anybody ever really passive? No, because they're buying, they're selling. Yeah. They're, well, you know, yeah. We may use these passive it, instruments, but that doesn't mean that you're actually a passive investor. I haven't met one of those yet. No, they, they don't exist because, yeah. you, you know, as soon as you make a decision, so you're buying a passive S&P and, you know, emerging markets and international and bonds, whatever. So you build a whole portfolio of passive instruments. But as soon as you make a decision to change anything, you're now an active investor. So, and to your point, Danny, there is no passive. Yeah. Ultimately. Well, and even that, I mean, you've made this point before. If, if a company gets taken out of the index, they just take it out. Whereas you're, you're hurt. Yeah. You, you has a, it has a negative impact on you and your money, whereas that index, it just changes. So, you know, those are all things I think that need to be taken into, into perspective, especially in times like this. It's really easy to get emotional. Um, you know, when I think everybody just needs to take a step back and say, okay, what does this mean for me? Do I have a plan? Go update that plan. Understand where you are. And, and I love what you said, looking at it on a rolling basis, you know, every two years. And I think that, look, it is important to manage and understand, you know, where you are, you know, in a short-term basis. Understand how, if you need to raise additional cash, if you can't sleep at night. I don't think there's ever an amount of return that anybody can achieve that's worth their health or their sleep. Mm -hmm. And I think that's counterintuitive from a lot of what advisors will tell people, but there's really not. Um, you know, if, if it's going to be bothering you that much or impact your life, then you probably do need to just say, okay, hey, let's take a breather, but have a plan to actually manage the funds, understand where you're going to go with them, and have a have an entry strategy as well. You know, that's the problem, right? Nobody once they get in, they don't have that extra exit, and once you get out, nobody has an entry right. point either. Yeah, and, that, and look, that's hard. Look, I, I absolutely agree with you. I've t I I tell people this all the time. It's like, oh man, you know, the market's really just killing me right now. Well, get out. And they're like, well, I can't. I might, you know, I'll, I'll miss the rally when it comes. It's like, yeah, but that's okay. Can you sleep at night? Yeah. Is your money safe at that point if you're all in cash? And look, I'm not recommending you go to cash, but the point is, is if this is if this is creating mental and marital distress, get out of the market, right? It's it's like stand, you know, like like Frogger crossing the freeway, right? You know, stop running in front of traffic if it's stressing you out, right? It, it, as long as you're able to to maintain it and leave, lead a healthy life, that's the important thing, right? Your health and and your marriage, those are the most important things. And if investing in the markets is stressing you out, quit. It doesn't mean you can't get back in later when things calm down. And again, the hard part is you're going to miss the rally. You're going to miss the recovery. And that's and guess what? That's completely okay. Nothing wrong with that. Bear markets are generally fairly short, generally 12 to 18 months. Bull markets tend to last for several years. So even if you miss the bottom, who cares? When the market starts recovering, get back in the markets and start enjoying the, the returns from there when things calm down and you can, you can handle the volatility. But if you can't handle the volatility, A, that tells you two things. One, you're not meant to really be an investor. And B, you've got the wrong allocation. So you can fix the allocation pretty quick, but you can't fix the investor part. That's just a function of your personality. And just, it's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Not everybody's meant to be an investor. That's why there's certain people that do it and certain, pe certain people that don't. Just, you know, defer to what your abilities are and, and manage your money accordingly. And you guess what? You're going to be fine in the long term. And Saving is the best, best way to build wealth. Well, it is. It's your human capital. And is it doing the right thing financially? I mean, we can make arguments. Probably not. Uh, yeah. But be cautious. Understand yourself. I think that's going to be the biggest thing. Y'all have questions. Go to realinvestmentadvice.com. Ask a question. Lance gets to you right away. I do. Every day. All right. Wrap up the show. Three minutes of markets and money coming up. Uh, CPI coming out this morning. Markets pointing up this morning. Um, we'll see what happens. We'll talk about it more tomorrow as well with Michael Leibowitz. We'll talk about CPI.
and how the Fed may respond tomorrow with Michael Leibowitz right here on the show, Real Investment Show. Of course, I'm your host, Lance Roberts. See you tomorrow. It's a rich man's world. It's a rich man's world.